Good morning. Good morning. It's good to see everybody out. It's good to uh, good to be here with you and good to uh, see all your faces. Sometimes you wake up on a Sunday morning, and I had this this morning, and I just felt like, uh, I don't know, uh, We've been blessed. I feel like nothing could stop me today. So uh, let's dive right into it. We've uh, we've been doing a series on Galatians 5. We've been talking about the fruit of the Spirit. We did a lot of groundwork first to get up to the point where we could talk about the fruit of the Spirit. And now we're there. And just to give you sort of the two-minute recap of, of everything we've talked about so far, in verse 1 of Galatians chapter 5, we talked about, uh, we, we, we had a whole lesson on Galatians 1 verse 5. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. And we talked about how that means that Christ's purpose was not to come and, and condemn us or wag his finger at us or put us to shame, but rather he came to set us free, to liberate us from everything that binds us in this human experience, from, uh, from sin and death and ultimately the power of Satan from which these fundamental human problems emanate. Christ came to set us free from that. And then Paul talks about uh, the idea that they are abandoning grace for, uh, for the law, for circumcision in verses 2 uh, through 12, and, then, and about how inappropriate that is because it is by grace that we come to Christ, and it's in grace. Grace is the soil in which the fruit of the Spirit grows. And then we talked about uh, the idea that the, the walk of the flesh and the spirit are fundamentally in opposition to one another. So it's not just that you should cultivate the fruits of the spirit and uh, not cultivate and avoid the works of the flesh because the works of the flesh are bad and the fruit of the spirit is good. I mean, that, that, that's transparently true from the passage, but it's deeper than that. It's that you cannot do both at the same time one will impede the other. If you try to walk after the, the path of the Spirit while keeping one foot in the realm of the flesh, you will make no progress on, on your path and you will greatly damage yourself in the process. And that's a fundamental idea here too, is that the works of the flesh are work, they are taxing, they take a toll, they destroy ultimately, they're destructive, and the fruit of the Spirit are the opposite. They're the other side of that coin. They're fruit. Fruit is healthy, right? And fruit is also a thing that is sweet. It's to be savored. And that is what the fruits of the Spirit are for us. They are their own reward. And they multiply upon themselves. So that brings us up to what we talked about last week, which was uh, the, first of th of the first grouping of three in this listing that Paul gives of the fruit of the Spirit, starting in Galatians 5 and verse 22. The first three are love, joy, peace, and we talked last week about those being uh, the uh, God-word or God-directed uh, triad here. The first three are love, joy, peace, and those have to do with how we see ourselves in relation to God. The next three that we're going to talk about today, patience, kindness, goodness, I'm positing are a, 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 a triad of fruits that are directed toward fellow man and toward others. And then the last three that we're going to talk about next week are directed toward self. Patience, kindness, goodness. That's what we're talking about this morning. And these words in the Greek have specific meanings, and we're going to do a little bit of word study and discuss how we can implement these ideas in our lives for practical growth, because that's what it's all about. It's all about gaining fruit 
And it's all about looking back and saying, I don't know how I came from there to here, but praise the Lord for taking me from where I was to where I am now. That's the process of the Christian walk and Christian growth. And the fruits of the Spirit are what facilitate that growth. <clears throat> so, Galatians 5 and verse 22. Let's just read it one more time. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Let's talk about this first word, patience. Patience uh, in the Greek is uh, macrothymia. And again, I said this last week, I'll probably say it this, uh, next week too, and I'll say it now. I'm not a Greek expert. Uh, don't uh, uh, hold me to uh, being an expert in the Greek. But uh, these words in the Greek are important because they have specific meanings that are often slightly different from the meanings of our English words. And so the English translations are an approximation, but it's an important to get back to uh, the original meaning and context of, of the text. And so uh, some alternate ways you could look at this, this word is long-suffering, forbearance, endurance, constancy, steadfastness, slowness to retaliation, willingness to endure wrongs. It's actually, if you look at it etymologically, and I think that's the right word, a word from, you know, about how words come to be in word meanings, it's a compound word from the words for long and great uh, and the word for passion or wrath. They're just smashed together. And it means something like enduring great, great wrath or enduring much wrath. That's what this word for patience means. Okay. Um, so again, we've said that this third triad is directed more toward fellow man than the first three fruits. And uh, I think that makes sense because human nature in, in other people and in ourselves often requires us to be patient, right? We are um, constantly disappointed and let down and our expectations are uh, dashed often by uh, the, the gap between what we would like people to be and, and what they are. And often we, we view this exclusively from an external point of view and we never apply it to ourselves and say, I am not as I should be. I let myself down. I let others down constantly. Um, and so, uh, again, the, patience is something that you've got to have to get through this life. But the idea of biblical patience or, or macrothymia is, is deeper uh, than just the, sort of the sense of our English word for patience, which most of the time when people use it, it, it kind of means something like enduring annoyance or enduring some mild unpleasantness, right? You wait in line and you got to wait for 30 minutes at the post office in line, and you wish you didn't have to wait in line. And so you're saying, I'm suffering. And you are. You, it, suffering is, by definition, uh, uh, the experience you have when the expectations that you have for life and the world are dashed by reality, right? And so uh, it's not suffering in the same sense that somebody you know, dying from cancer is suffering, but any time that, that the world does not live up to the high and often irrational and contradictory expectations that we have for it, we end up suffering. And so that's what drives us to know that there must be something beyond this life and this material existence because we are so consistently disappointed with it uh, in a way that defies reason. 
And so, uh, biblical patience is more than just uh, enduring a little bit of uh, annoyance or unpleasantness, but it has to do with the idea of bearing the cross. How could Paul endure all the wrongs that he lists in 2 Corinthians? We just covered this in, in Mark's 2 Corinthians class, where Paul is talking about all the things that he's gone through. He's been shipwrecked. He's been uh, stoned almost to death, slashed to death. There's debate about this. Uh, he's been uh, you know, uh, persecuted, uh, run around, uh, run out of towns, and uh, lied about and defamed. And uh, he's in, you know, suffered all these hardships. And he says uh, he counts everything as loss for Christ. How could Paul go through all that he went through? How could, if you look at the Old Testament, there were always uh, a, a, a remnant, a subsect of the ancient Israelites who clung to God by faith and not by works of the law, but rather trusted in God as their righteousness and not in their own righteousness. But those people, those righteous people of old, the prophets of old, um, they endured oppression and wrath. They endured oppression and wrath from within and from without. Their, their own countrymen worked against them, their own people worked against them, and foreign oppressors came and occupied them and worked against them uh, and often uh, made them to suffer as well. And so how did they endure that? I mean, the ultimate example, obviously, is Christ. How did Christ endure the ultimate abuse, which was his own humiliation and torture and crucifixion? Again, as we, uh, I think I said last week, how did Christ have the wherewithal, the presence of mind, to say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do? It really defies the way human beings typically think. How can you go through something like that and remain joyful patience we all agree that 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 you know human nature can often be dark and ugly um, and when that when that ugliness gets turned on us we say i've been wronged we want to uh you know as the old saying goes make a federal case about it we're upset we've been wrong what the gospel calls us to do, if you look at what Christ said on the subject of how people are going to treat you in this world, if you call yourself a follower of Christ, a student of Christ, Jesus said that um, they will do the same things to you that they did to me, that you will face persecution. The gospel calls us to let go of this erroneous expectation, this false expectation that we will not suffer. We will suffer at the hands of fellow men. We will suffer at the hands of powers, uh, both natural and man-made, that we're powerless to stop. That is just going to be a part of our lives. Turn to uh, John chapter 16 real quick. This is just a quick cross-reference, but I think it's important. John chapter 16. John chapter 16 and verse 33 Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. If you turn to 2 Timothy uh, 3.12, 
there's a similar idea echoed when Paul says that all who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. And that idea of persecution has at its core the idea of man-made suffering, specifically motivated by uh, faith. But again, when we face that situation, the gospel calls us uh, to accept it. What did we expect? What were we told would happen? Bearing the cross of Christ, we want to talk about bearing the cross of Christ a, a lot. And we do a lot of talk about this, but I don't think we often fully articulate what that means. Bearing the cross of Christ means following Christ and accepting the abuse that He accepted and up to and including that which He suffered at Golgotha, that which He suffered at Calvary. And you should be prepared as a Christian to endure that suffering, not because you deserve it, or not because God takes pleasure or, or likes to see you suffer, but because when, when we spend our time resisting the abuses of the world and trying to get back for the things that have been done wrong to us, we become an abuser, we become an oppressor, we become violent ourselves. We become filled with rage and anger and, and resentment and, and maliciousness ourselves. The only way to break this cycle is to let go. Let go of this idea that you're going to be treated a certain way in this world. The world can and do whatever it can and will do whatever it likes to you. Christ didn't promise you anything different. He only promised you a means through which to endure suffering, just as He endured His suffering with joy, with gladness, for the joy that was set before Him. It wasn't that the pain was joyful, it was the cause, the mission, the purpose, which was, again, going back to verse 1, our freedom. That was worth it to Christ. That was a joy to Christ. We're called to the example of Christ, who rather than retaliating, as He could have, who could say he wouldn't? He didn't have the right to. Nobody could certainly say he didn't have the power to. But he refused to participate in the violence of his persecutors. Instead, he, he interceded for them. He, he prayed for them to the Father as they killed him, as they tortured him. So this is a dark thing at the bottom of this word for patience. There is suffering involved in this word. It seems uh, dark. But the acceptance of the possibility and ultimate inevitability, really, is we're all going to die. And that's not going to be pleasant any way it goes down, right? Accepting the ultimate inevitability of intense suffering is necessary to grow fruit, and it is itself a fruit. It may not seem that way. There are a lot of people in this world that walk through their whole lives like they don't know it's going to end one day. Like they don't know anything bad can ever happen to them. That's not a way to live. You make bad choices. Because with the knowledge, um, with the knowledge that we can endure through faith, um, everything and anything becomes bearable to us. It's not that it's not going to be hard. It's not that we're not going to feel this pain. It's deeply involved in the human condition. 
But on the other side of the acceptance of this suffering is a steadfastness which is truly liberating. You don't have to be afraid in any situation, in any respect, because Christ already told you what's going to happen. You're going to have an abundant life here in Christ. He's going to bless you right here and now. He's going to give you everything you need to make your life the best life it could be. And we will also suffer here for a short time. But at the end of that short time, and this life here is a very short time, at the end of that short time, our abundant life, which we've cultivated here as a garden, will carry on into eternity. It will remain. It will abide. So patience is the fruit we develop here so that we can endure the unpleasantness and the suffering that is in, inherently involved in life here because we're seeking the godlike quality of being able to be wronged and not retaliate. Imagine this from God's perspective if you, if you could try to. How many times have we wronged God knowingly? Multiply that by the number of people on earth and you can you know, give a conservative figure, very conservative figure, say maybe everybody on earth uh, intentionally, knowingly wrongs God once a day. It's a very conservative figure, but we'll just say it. Billions of people simultaneously offending God's holiness, wronging Him, depriving Him of what is rightfully His, and contributing to the brokenness and the fallenness of this world that we live in. God endures that all day long, every day, for all time. Since the beginning of, of since humanity uh, uh, has uh, been given dominion over this earth. Patience, we could think of, this word macrothymia, the biblical term here is, is another way of thinking about the, the idea that Christ taught of turning the other cheek, of not resisting evil done to you. It's taking that idea and applying it not just to individuals who wrong us, but to this whole existence, which is fundamentally wrong in some deep, unfixable way. We turn the other cheek and we do not resist and we say, God will make this right. Only He is adequate to that task. and He will do it in His way and in His time. And my resistance to what's happening now, to my being wronged here, is just me inflating my ego and putting myself in the place of God and standing as a judge over another. Instead, I will take the lot in life which has been given to me. And I will cultivate, still, through whatever suffering I must endure, joy and peace and love and express those things outwardly. That's what each of us are called to do. Kindness. Moving on to this next term. Kindness. Uh, okay, this one is difficult for me to, eat, for me to pronounce. Correct. Uh, crestotes, I think, is uh, is the term for that. I'd have to actually ask Mike Wilson, to be honest. Talon is here. He's uh, training under Mike Wilson right now, and uh, 
man, uh, I'm sure that if Mike could hear even my attempted Greek pronunciations that I've done in just this lesson alone, uh, he would be uh, blowing a gasket in the pew right now. But uh, it's, uh, <laughs> this, is, this is how I do it. I don't have to have the right pronunciations. Um, this word for kindness, you could uh, also translate it excellence, uprightness, moral goodness. Uh, that's specifically toward fellow man. And uh, useful kindness or divine kindness or another way you see this talked about in, in some of the commentary and scholarship around th this verse. And useful kindness is probably the closest to the actual word meaning in the Greek. We kind of take for granted uh, in our culture that, that kindness is a universally good thing. Um, but, I mean, actually, if you think about it uh, intellectually, uh, it, it, it in and of itself, kindness is not a good. Uh, you know, for example, like, if, you know, some serial killer who's on the run comes to your door and you take him in and you feed him and you, you treat this person kindly and you don't, you know, call the police or make any effort to restrain this person or uh, there's no thought toward justice whatsoever or, or for that matter, toward your own protection and, and well-being by inviting this person into your home. Well, what you've done in that situation, uh, nobody could say it's not kind, but it's also not useful. Um, it, 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 it is a, a misuse of your kindness. Uh, so I, I connect this with the idea that we're supposed to be innocent as doves, but also cunning or as wise as serpents. Um, the idea is um, we do no harm. We are kind uh, to everyone. It doesn't mean, though, that we are stupid about it. It doesn't mean that we open our doors to anyone who, you know, might, you know, clearly, you know, overtly want to, uh, you know, harm us or, or be malicious toward us. Um, but if we think about useful kindness as it relates to what we do here in the church and what we do in evangelism when we're trying to spread the gospel, we're trying to bring people the good news of Christ, the meaning of this word gets a little bit more clear. See, in every respect, the kindness that we're supposed to be cultivating in our lives and in our churches and in our families is are oriented around service and making things easier and lifting people's burdens and solving problems. This is what kindness is all about. In the church, in my family here, to develop kindness uh, that, that is useful... I'm going to look for ways to work, ways to be of use, ways to make life for everyone here easier and better. And that's going to necessarily involve me taking some burdens onto myself. And ideally, the way it's supposed to work in the church is we all take a little bit of the burden onto ourselves and it's distributed among us and we can share in it and bear each other's burdens. Often the, distribu the distribution of burdens born in a congregation can turn out to be somewhat uneven. I think that's a, a problem that just sort of is, again, resultant from human nature. But we all contrib can contribute something. We can all lift some burden. We can all serve in some way. We all have something that we're good at. As it relates to the lost and to evangelism... When I am faced with somebody who does not know the gospel and who needs to know it, 
I'm trying to the best of my ability to see that person's heart, um, to see their, the specific needs that they need met, and to try to anticipate the best tactics to use in conveying the gospel message, which is the most important thing that you could ever convey to anyone. It's important that we get it right, right? That we not miscommunicate, that we not misrepresent our Savior. It's a very serious thing. So sharing the gospel with a lost soul is the ultimate useful kindness, in, in, in my book anyway, because there's nothing that, that anyone can give back to you that's of equal value if you teach them the gospel. You've given them the ultimate gift. It can't be repaid. And it's not because you were so great and gave them such a great gift. God gave the gift and you just pointed it out to them and made them aware of it. But it meets the ultimate, the utmost need, which is reconciliation with God. Every human soul longs to dwell in communion with God. I don't care what anybody says. It's a... When people try to live away from God, they inevitably, helplessly, um, try to fill the void with secular substitutions for faith. Every human soul needs Jesus. Every human soul needs the gospel. There is no higher need that could be met. There's no higher use we could put our lives and our talents to. I think there are a lot of areas of, of our lives, both as individuals and here in the church, that we could completely revolutionize and change, um, change this community, change our state, change the nation, change the world. If we could just take in the meaning of this word. If there's a dysfunction in the church, if there's a problem in our families, our spiritual family here, the problem is almost certainly, uh, at least in part, due to a lack of kindness and consideration for each other. Isn't that the saddest thing to realize? That for all the talking we do about the scripture and about doctrine and about authority, which all of which is extremely important, and I don't mean to discount that, but where we trip is often the smallest, most fundamental human thing. Be kind. Show love to each other. I know... Um, I know, I've seen it, how great an impact that this idea that's contained in this word can have on how we preach the gospel, how we present it, and how it's received. I think too often in the past, um, we have approached the gospel in a one-size-fits-all way. And the gospel is what it is. It's never changing. And Christ's uh, what Christ proclaimed to us is always um, until the end of time, until He returns. But we often have approached it, I think, without any consideration for the individual or where they might be beginning or what their interests or, or curiosities might be or, or what their personal background is and, and where, you know, what they're trying to find in learning more about Christ. And I think to ignore those things, to not take them into consideration is a fundamental mistake we 
we cannot afford to make anymore. When I say we can't afford to make it anymore, I mean, we could never really afford to make it. But if you look around us at where our, our, our culture is and the, the animosity against uh, uh, Christianity in specific and religious faith in general and some of the um, destructive uh, ideas and movements that are being fomented in society on all sides from all different directions, when we look at that, we say, we're up against a lot, friends. We're up against a we're up against forces that wish to destroy us completely. And so when we take stock of that, and when we take stock of that, it makes it sink in for us how important spreading that good news is, spreading that message is, because in that gospel, in that message, in that word, in that path of life that Christ taught us, are all the answers to everything that plagues this nation and this world. Before we make any progress in teaching someone the gospel, we have to first care about them and demonstrate that care. We have to care about where they've been. We have to care about where they are now. We have to care about where they want to go. The stakes are too high. Failure would be... Will it, the implications of failure for this state and for this country are too catastrophic for us to not proclaim the gospel with kindness and understanding and truth and a deep longing for all to come to a knowledge of the gospel and truth. Not in rigid pomposity, not in you know shaking our fingers at people and uh, looking down our noses at them and, and holding ourselves above them morally, because we're not above them morally in any way. We are sinners, saved by the grace of God. We need to be declaring that gospel, that sinners who have turned their backs on God and not known Him and not sought Him can in the blink of an eye find Him again. And it turns out he was never far away. He was with you always. Calling you to turn to Him, to embrace Him, to take the arm of help that is outstretched from the heavens for you. The difficult part of this useful kindness idea is the useful part. I mean, that's pretty clear. How do you know what's useful? It's hard sometimes. And we're all going to make mistakes. Uh, I make mistakes all the time. I constantly say things that I think later, I shouldn't have said that. I put my foot in my mouth. I should have expressed it this way instead of that way. Um, I shouldn't have let my you know, emotions or my uh, you know, uh, excitement about whatever I'm talking about run away with me. I should be more purposeful. I have this thought in my head all the time. I think it's a good thing to be you know, self-critical to a degree in that way because we're trying to get better, right? We're trying to, to do better, uh, a better job of conveying this gospel. And again, the work is, does not rest in us. It's, it's all about the work that God is doing. That doesn't mean we can't sharpen our tools. It doesn't mean we can't develop the skills we have. So there's no magic bullet. There's no way to always do the right, usefully kind thing. But there are a few key factors that I think we can tune into that really make a big difference. And here are a few of them. One is setting. You've got to be mindful when you're talking with, with anybody 
be it a Christian, be it a non-Christian, in the church, out of the church, of the, the place and the social setting and, and public versus private, we got to really be careful not to, not to you know, embarrass anybody or to uh, you know, go out of our way to put anyone down, um, which I've seen happen in the church. And it's an ugly thing. There's no place for it. Next thing is listen. We, got to li we have to listen, actually listen for comprehension to the words people are saying when they talk to us. Not just sitting there and formulating what we're going to say next or how we're going to teach this or that. But we act have to actually have to receive what people are saying uh, when, we, when we converse with them about the gospel um, and, and take it into consideration. Because the information that people give us when we talk to them, it changes the calculation of how we convey the message uh, to some degree. It's important also to take stock of body language, of facial expressions. Pay attention to nonverbal communication, which is often much more honest and direct than what people say verbally. Take a genuine interest in people's stories, in people's backgrounds, and where people have been. Ask questions about background and life, just, just to gather general info, not with any agenda, trying as best we can to not judge or editorialize anything, but just take in what the person gives us. Gather info. Get to know them like you would get to know a friend. They've got to become a friend to you if you're going to if you're going to convey them anything and convey to them anything and have it mean anything to them. They got to know you care. Finally, um, well, not finally. There are a few more things. Um, uphold the dignity of people. Treat treat each person as an eternal being with God-given dignity that is worthy of being preserved and upheld, no matter who the person is or what they've been or where they've done, even and especially if you're having a disagreement with this person or if there's tension between you and this person. Uphold their dignity. It's not a fight. It's not a war. Everything we do here is love. We're not tearing each other down. We're building each other up. Be a solutions person. Don't, don't just tear down while offering nothing constructive. Look for solutions. Be a problem solver. That, that sometimes involves creativity. It sometimes involves thinking outside the box, which is you know, something people kind of raise their eyes at sometimes in the church, people thinking outside the box or coloring outside the lines. But sometimes that's what needs to happen to, to solve a tough problem. We have to uh, look for solutions. Be a problem solver. Look for um, ways to, uh, you know, facilitate peace and harmony within the body. We don't have to express every thought or say everything that we might think. That's not always useful. That is, this is especially true with online communication, too. People can't can, can't understand your tone. They can't understand what's underneath what you're saying when you're typing on a screen or on your phone, or tweeting or whatever you're doing. Not saying those things are bad or that we shouldn't even, we shouldn't use them or anything like that. I'm just saying we got to be careful about how we come across and what people might think uh, about us, especially without the benefit of hearing our tone and our seeing our body language and all those things. And we don't, I mean, again, 
just because something might be true doesn't mean it's the most beneficial thing for you to say. And so I'll just leave it at that. We need to use wisdom and discretion about what we say and how we say it. Uh, and name-calling, moral comparisons, gossip, grandstanding, manipulation, all these things are never useful in any circumstances. I cannot be more emphatic about that. There is no place for any of these things in the church. We have no right to call anyone any names. We have no right to you know, hold ourselves above anyone morally. We certainly have no right to gossip about anybody. There are direct verses about that that people often just conveniently ignore. Uh, we have no right to you know, sort of use our, our position in the church to try to gather power or mass forces or you know, sort of make a faction. Uh, we don't have any cause to try to you know, manipulate people into doing what we want them to do. That's not what love in a family is about. It's about everybody in this together, pulling the same direction, wanting the same things, trying to get where we're going, which is heaven, which is union with God and a return to the original order of God's creation. Finally, be someone who relieves tension when you enter a room. And that has to begin within. That has to begin inside you. You ever know somebody that just... I don't know how to... Yeah, de define it exactly but there are some people that when they come into a room or when they come into a conversation it's like ah, finally somebody I don't know it, it, some, some people have a way of just diffusing tension finally somebody who gets it finally somebody who's at peace who's not threatened by what's happening here everybody's known somebody like that who just seems to reflexively lift people's burdens and make everything easier. You can be that person. It's not outside of your abilities. It takes work. It takes cultivation. Again, like a garden. Like growing fruit. But you can be the person that everybody's always happy to see because they know that you're going to have a solution. You're going to have the right attitude. You're going to make things easier. You're not going to tear people down. You're going to build everyone toward Christ. That's the kind of person we want to be. This whole thing of kindness, what it really is, is externalizing what we talked about last week, which was joy and peace. Joy being a happiness that is beyond the circumstances of this life that comes from knowledge of how blessed we are in Christ. And peace is the steadiness, the firmness that we feel from that, that joy, that come what may, we're going to remain rooted in the foundation that is Christ. So when we really feel those things within, and when we cultivate them, and want more of them, and develop more of them, kindness becomes the process of letting that fruit shine outward onto the people around us. And it is contagious. It has a multiplying effect when you let a little bit of kindness out. And we all have seen this and know this. If you let a little bit of kindness into the room, into the conversation, pretty soon um, everybody is being kind and happy and complimenting each other and laughing. And we're all happy to be here. 
And should, that's how it should be. We should all be happy to be with the household of faith. And it should be apparent. It should be obvious. It should be observable. That's kindness. Finally, goodness. Uh, this word means intrinsic goodness. Goodness as a personal quality. Goodness in attitude and spirit as opposed to goodness in conduct and morals, although conduct and morals are, are, are very important. Uh, but the, what's under consideration in this word is uh, goodness that comes from the inner life and uh, goodness and uprightness of heart. And this is the only place in the Bible where this term is found, the specific Greek term. You can find the English word good or goodness in a lot of places. But this Greek word is only found here, and it's also found in some, some early Christian writings that are extra-canonical. Um, but really, we don't have any secular use of this term in, in the Greek that we can find or have documented. This term has to do, from, from everything we can see about where it's used in, in the Bible and in, uh, in early Christian literature, it has to do with letting that good, which God is working in us, shine outward on others. And it's connected in some ways uh, with the last term, kindness, but it, uh, it, it has to do with, um, with the spiritual qualities which Christ develops uh, in us uh, through our walk and conveying those through, uh, through our actions and through our example uh, to those around us. Paul tells us in Romans that there's no intrinsic good in the flesh, uh, but that the realm of the flesh is fundamentally neutral. We talked about this in, in Romans. Um, the goodness or badness of the flesh or of the body is entirely contingent on the one who occupies that temple. So we can either be a temple in this flesh unto God, or we can be a temple in this flesh unto Satan. And we can be put to God's uses, or we can be put to Satan's uses. And those are really the only two options. Uh, there is no true freedom in the sense of I am my own boss. I become a slave to Christ and his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And that is how he liberates me. He asks much less of me, actually, than Satan does. He takes much less from me than Satan does. But the Spirit... Um, the walk of the Spirit and worship in Spirit that Christ talks about, the Spirit that is within us, it has an original purity and goodness that I think is demonstrated in the original order of Genesis 1 and 2. When God systematically sets order to everything and puts everything where it goes and He declares it good. It's good. Things only become bad in Genesis 3, where human choice enters into the picture and humans choose darkness rather than light. And that sends in motion a, a set of dis, you know, cascading dominoes that lead us to the world we have today. But the goodness that we're talking about here is that which existed before the fall. And that which at our best moments in Christ exists within us and is longing to get out and multiply and grow and transform not just you but everything around you into something 
much better, something new. Everything in our Christian walk is focused toward a return to God's original order from the inside out. From the depths of my soul, I'm trying to become what God intended me to be since before the beginning of time, since before anything existed. So again, you develop this joy and this peace, and it's, it's all directed at God, but then it translates on the human level into some very uh, concrete and observable qualities. It translates into light shining out from you before men and influencing them toward God. What did Christ say? Let your light shine before men that they may see your Father and glorify your Father who is in heaven. They may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The light shining out of us is this goodness that Paul refers to here. It is conveying the gospel not just in what we teach people and not just in what we say, but in how we live our lives and in everything that we do. That's goodness in the Christian sense. It's trying to become someone who exemplifies the gospel. And again, it's a double-edged thing. Because we're always going to fall far short of that calling. But the aspiration to be one with Christ is one that should leak out of us and get everywhere and all over everything that we touch. It should be discernible. It should be palpable to everyone that we meet. I know I'm over my time here. I'm going to wrap up by 12, I promise. Like all these traits, there's no limit in application. That's what Paul means when he says, against such there's no law. There are infinite ways and methods, as many as there are people, that you can shine your light. Whatever skills and abilities you have, and I truly believe this, this is such a powerful idea to internalize, whatever skills and abilities you have, you can direct them towards a godly end. You can use them to build the kingdom of God. Do everything that you do, every action you take, thinking of Christ and how He would do it. I mean, the, the what would Jesus do phrase is cliched and you see it everywhere. And uh, oftentimes I don't even think people know what they mean when they say it. But at the core of it is a really powerful, true thing, which is we're representatives of Jesus. We've got to take that in every moment, every day. We're showing Jesus to the world, to a world that desperately needs to see him. If you... If you do this, if you focus on showing Christ to the world, those around you will see Jesus through you. You don't even have to do it perfectly because you can't. The Word, the Gospel, is powerful enough to fill in every blank and every inadequacy in how you may present the Word if there is a heart that wishes uh, to learn and to grow and to become one with God. Doesn't mean we shouldn't consider how we present things. It doesn't mean we shouldn't consider how we come across. But what it means is that in a way the pressure's off. God is going to do the work. The gospel's going to do the work. I just set the word in front of people and say, isn't this great? I'm going to celebrate this. I found such joy in this.
I think everyone can find this joy. I hope you find this joy in Christ. This goodness, the shining of this light is meant ultimately for the glorification of God. Everything in the Christian walk ends in God's glory. If you're doing something not for God's glory, you better stop and ask yourself some questions. I don't care what it is you're doing. Do it for God's glory. If you can't, then you shouldn't do it. This is the highest end, God's glory, because it gives God everything we can give Him, and it gives Him what He requires and what He desires. What does God really want? He wants the heart. He wants you to devote what is in you to Him, to His will, and to the good which comes from God. It's the highest end because it puts man in his proper place in relation to God. And at the same time, it allows God to, and Christ to work through us. We, broken sinful creatures, become the mouthpieces, the vessels through which God is building his kingdom. Against such there is no law. There is no end to the pain and the suffering that this life is going to bring or could possibly bring. We might get fortunate. We might have an easy life. But it's just as likely we won't. There's no end to the possible pain and suffering in this life. But that, the other side of that is there's no end to the development of patience and the strength that we can gain from that. It can be developed to the, to the utmost degree, as Reuben said, until as long as we're here on earth until the Lord calls us home. There's no end of the coldness and the bitterness and the meanness of human behavior. It really reaches depths that astound you sometimes. But that also means, the other side of that is, there's no end to the development of kindness. There's no end to the amount of kindness and goodness that you can put into the world to counteract everything that's wrong with it. There's no shortage of darkness in the world. And that means there's no end to the development of goodness. There's no end to the ways in which we try to shine the light out into the darkness. Finally, I want to end with the idea of focusing on the positive. It's very important. And again, this is my opinion, so take it as my opinion, nothing more than that. Um, but in my opinion, we have in the past, I think, a lot of times been overly reactive to both the world at large and the religious world at large. We want to spend a lot of our time fighting battles and, and uh, you know, arguing and taking stances against things and talking about what we're against. And sometimes that is necessary and sometimes that's vital. But... What we've done, what we've neglected in doing that sometimes, I fear, is preaching the gospel affirmatively. That means saying, this is what it says, and I'm going to preach that, and that's it. On its own terms, in the way that it's presented in the gospel, I think instead of doing that, we've often allowed other people to define the, converse, the terms of the conversation. So part of the reason, I think, uh, that we don't grow and do as much as we should and we don't see the effects that we'd like to see all the time in our churches and in our communities is that we don't 
I think, always truly appreciate how deep these fruits can go and how good they can be and how much they can bless this church and this community and this world. If we did, we'd want to talk about nothing else. We would, we would talk about it all the time. We would tell everybody we know about what this has done for me, what Christ has done for me, what Christ has grown in the soil of grace that He laid down in my heart and all these delicious fruits that, that I have now to enjoy and that I, share, that I can share with others and, and multiply my joy. If you have something that's joyful to yourself, it's better to share it with others. It's better to have a meal with friends rather than have a meal all to yourself. Same way with the fruit of the Spirit. We have the keys to the diseases of an ailing world. The keys, the solutions to every problem are contained in the Gospel and are contained in these fruits which are, the, the fruits of the Spirit are just themselves compressed statements of the character of Christ and of the Gospel message. These words are words that represent the values of Christ and the values of the message that He proclaimed uh, you know, in, of course in a very tightly condensed way. And there's simplification involved in that obviously. There's more to the Gospel message than just these qualities. But the keys are there, the solutions are there, and all we must do is proclaim them, is point them out. Point to the Word, celebrate it, and say, I'm going to praise God for what He's done for me. I'm going to worship Him and declare His name and His gospel to the world until the Lord calls me home. So let's start living up to the true value of this treasure we possess. It's a sweet, sweet, valuable thing, the fruit of the Spirit. Let's start cultivating. Let's start treating them like what they are. Patience, kindness, and goodness. These are qualities that are going to make every interaction we have in the church and in the world better. Next week we're going to talk about the last three of these uh, fruits of the Spirit, which are faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and these are the more self-word qualities. Um, so we'll talk about that next week. If there are any who have any need, if there are any who have not been made a child of God, we ask that you would make that right today. Trust in Him. Confess Him as your Lord. Repent, which, which means to turn away from, uh, from self and from the world and toward the will of God and allow yourself to be used for His purposes. And then be immersed into the covenant. Raise a new creature from the water of baptism to walk a new life. And if you're a Christian and you've wandered off the path, you've become lost, or, or you just are in need of, of support and prayers, it is our deepest desire that we support and uplift you and, and, and restore you to community here with everyone who's trying to achieve the same goals and do the same things. We're all trying to get to heaven. We're all trying to grow these qualities. We're all trying to become more like Christ. If there are any who have any spiritual need, won't you come as we sing the song that we've announced?